What's up, guys? Thanks for joining us. This is Danny Langloss. Hey, if you're not following us on LinkedIn, please connect, follow us. We're posting daily leadership, mindset, motivation content. Also linked in this podcast description is an article we wrote titled Employee Engagement 10X, The Seven Pillars of Ownership. Ownership changes the game. Ownership is our team members' extreme psychological and emotional commitment to the team, to the organization, to our goals, to our purpose. It's when people do things because it's important to them, not because they're told to do it. Changes everything. All right, here we go. Let's get after it. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss, and today we're joined by Jeff Niswitz, and we're going to be talking about the key components of 21st century leadership. What worked in leadership over the last 10, 20, 30 years isn't the same thing that works today, and we're going to take a deep, deep dive into this. Jeff is a speaker, author, accelerator, relationship builder, master storyteller, chief inquisitor, motivator, and story debunker. He's the founder and chief story debunker of the Niswitz Group a speaking, consulting, and coaching company that transforms people and organizations one story at a time. Jeff helps businesses accelerate revenue, develop effective leaders, nurture high-performing teams, and execute on their objectives. He's also uh, one of the hosts of the Leadership Junkies podcast. Jeff, welcome to the Leadership Excellence podcast. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You and I both. So we just had a conversation and got to know each other before we came on air here. And Jeff has some incredible stories, incredible experiences. Can't wait to take a deep dive with him today. But first, Jeff, can you talk us to us a little bit about your journey that's led you to where you are today? Yeah. Um, I like to tell people that I would, I would love to tell you and everyone else that it was a great plan, brilliantly executed, but it was actually more like a car wreck. Um, and the first part of my life and my career, I'm a re fully recovered lawyer. I used to say recovering, but now I say recovered because I practiced law 17 years and I've been doing something else for almost 20 years now. So I figure once you cross over that halfway point, I'm recovered. Uh, most of my friends would agree and colleagues as well. So I took, had a very traditional career path at the beginning, you know, law school, job, got the great job, made all the money, became a partner in a law firm, said, this isn't for me, started my own firm, built that firm, had a lot of success, uh, and then left because, and the, there's a longer story, but I left that, all that success, su supposed success, because I realized that what I, I didn't like being a lawyer, <laughs> I was just really good at it. And there were two big lessons in that for me. One was you can be really good at something doesn't mean you're supposed to do it. Uh, and the second is that when you think something's okay, it's actually probably worse because I thought it was okay. And I said, I can't live with okay. And when I decided to quit, I realized I actually hated practicing law. So that was a big lesson, but the car wreck happened. I went out, I started a business. I was convinced that I knew all the answers. Uh, I look back now and say, I was very much in my ego and I got humbled. Uh, that business failed. Uh, it took me five years to admit that it was my fault. Uh, I was blaming everybody else for five, for five years. But that, that car wreck that actually was a car wreck, uh, in the midst of that, I wrote a book 
and four lawyers actually on the business side of law, at least one person bought it. They called me up one day and without any plan, they asked me if I did coaching and I said, yes. And I got engaged to do some coaching with them. At that point I was working for other companies and within a year of that, I had started this business and now I'm in my 13th year. And the last thing I'll say is in the first probably five years of this business, I did good work. I feel like I did good work. I added value, but I realized it was, it was empty. It wasn't just empty for me. It was empty of real rich content. It was X's and O's. It was what everybody else said it with a little Jeff tweak. And I had this real strong view that how we were doing leadership and growing business was just wrong. And I decided about seven, eight years ago, it's time to just let it rip. And I've been letting it rip. And uh, not everybody's ready for this message, but those who are ready and really want to build a business and lead in a way where their people are front and center, it's fun. It's fun work. At individuals, organizations, and communities rise and fall with leadership. And I've been blessed to have a, a few, a couple really great leaders, but I've also been blessed, Jeff, to have some really bad leaders because, you know, when you, when you look at somebody who's a great leader, right. And you try to replicate what it is they do. That's hard because you got to figure out what it is they're doing that makes them a great leader and make it your own. But when you watch a bad leader, it's easy to say, I'll, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And I tell you, by the time I hit five years into my career was promoted to Sergeant, um, all the things that I'd eliminated, even though I had a long way to go on my journey to where I am today, and I still have a long way to go, but just by eliminating all these things, I had a really good foundation to work off of. Well, the sad state of affairs, when I talk about this now, Danny, um, I talk about leadership crisis. I talk about a massive leadership gap because when I look around the world, I don't just mean businesses, as you said, I look at businesses, I look at communities, I look at family, I look at nations and governments. I don't see much leadership. I occasionally see some good managers and there are some operators, but when I look at what I think leadership is, I don't see a lot. And I can tell you, we were talking offline about not speaking much the last 18 months, but when I go and talk to groups, I'll get up in the joke. If, unfortunately, it's a sad truth. I'll say, look, I want you to imagine, take out a piece of paper. Don't worry. It doesn't have to be a big piece of paper. I'm going to give you 15 seconds to list all the great leaders you're familiar with. And I know you won't need more time or more paper. And they all laugh. See, the problem is they all laugh because they know it's true. Like you said, you've, you've got, a, I think you said a 25 year career yeah, with the city and you're talking about less than a handful of great leaders, maybe a couple. And I often wonder, I think that's true, but I said, why is that? And what can we do differently to change that going forward? So Jeff, let me ask you, what does great leadership look like to you? That's a wonderful question because there's no. I, I used to think there was a clear answer to it. And I'm not convinced. I, I, I used to do workshops with this and I would get up and I'd say, give, let me give, give me all the traits of a great leader. The most we ever came up with was like 49 traits. And then I said, does anyone really expect the leader to have all of these? 
And they would chuckle and say, no, of course not, because they're bits and pieces. And I guess where I've come to is a short list. First of all, for me, great leaders put their, their people are literally first, because that's what leadership is about. That's the problem. I think we've lost our way because we forgot that leadership is about people and growing and developing people and in, engaging people and helping them be better so that they can lead. We have become a, a, a world where the leaders are all about just doing stuff and being hard workers and being a strategist. I'm actually at the point now, Danny, that I don't think leaders have to be strategic in the traditional sense. Somebody in the organization does, but that mindset says it's all about positional leadership. So the things that come to mind are we really put our people first because we're committed to growing them because that's the leader's job. The second is the leader has to have a clear set of values. What do they stand for? I don't mean just the company values, but what do they stand for? A great leader is very intentional about living those values. They pay attention to those values. They make decisions from those values. And the last piece I would add is, it's related to that. Great leaders walk the talk. You know, they, whatever they say is true or what they believe, you're going to see that consistently in their actions. And I guess there's an umbrella around that, Danny. And this is the part where people say, what does that mean? So that's why I give those four foundations. But the bigger umbrella is they do the right thing. And you say, what's the right thing? Well, it's all those things come together. When you bring those together, because that takes courage, that takes vulnerability. And I think that's another trait of great leaders is vulnerability. And I guess the outside bubble of the doing the right thing is um, being a human, because humans are imperfect. And too many leaders put on this show that they're perfect and have all the answers. Now everybody else thinks they have to be that. And maybe that leader expects them to be that when it's not true. I think we just need more humanity and leadership and those combination, I think will get us there. You know, you told me a story off air about leadership and the humanity of leadership and the true caring for other people and just the lack of that out there. Do you want to walk through that a little bit? Yeah, um, I see a, a huge lack of it in terms of re actually walking that talk back to that phrase. You know, I, I have my podcast, Leadership Junkies. We have a lot of guests on there. I speak to groups. I read a lot. I read books. Everybody's talking about this idea of bringing vulnerability and empathy into leadership. We're not seeing it. I mean, and the, and the evidence of it in the United States is, I'm sure you're familiar, Danny, with the great resignation back in April. Four million people voluntarily quit their jobs. Unheard of. What I didn't realize until a couple of weeks ago, following up on that, that wasn't just April. Because in April, May, and June, the number was 11.5 million people. So it wasn't an aberration. And I, I recently saw some research. They said, why? Why, did the resi why is this resignation happening? Well, a lot of organizations will tell you, well, it's because people are lazy and they don't want to work. And now they get unemployment benefits. They don't have to work so hard. The research says that the unemployment benefits is the bottom reason. It's the fourth and it's the smallest one. The top three reasons are people are rethinking work and life. Millions of people are rethinking work and life. The second is stress and burnout, which is related to rethinking life and work. And the third, no surprise, is 
they were dissatisfied with how they were treated during the pandemic by their employer. And most of that means it wasn't mean, doesn't mean they were treated poorly. It means they weren't treated like humans. They didn't feel cared about. They didn't feel supported. They were physically safe because businesses took care of the physical safety of their people, but they didn't take care of the emotional safety of their people and their psychological safety of their people. People are hurting and their, their place of employment was not a place that made them feel safe. Just too many leaders said that in my job. So my frustration and sadness, more often sadness and frustration is we know what needs to happen. The workforce has spoken. That gets into the 21st century concept. But how many companies are rethinking business when their people, their teams are rethinking work? If they're rethinking, you better be rethinking it too. And I just don't see enough of that happening. Well, there's not, you know, and we talk a lot about, so one of the things when I speak to groups and I talk about leadership, I ask them why they lead, right? And, and it's not rhetorical. Like we engage them into why they lead because why we lead directly translates into how we lead. And, and, and honestly, you know, unlike me or you, like I told that story about looking at these bad leaders and saying, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. I'll never do that. What I actually see is when people get into a leadership position right? They're not leaders, they're bosses, they're managers, whatever. They feel this sense of entitlement. They have earned it. They have made it. And instead of eliminating, eliminating those things and helping and take care of those people, this is their chance to get revenge for what happened to them. And I've got countless examples just in the Sauk Valley region, which isn't, I mean, you know, a three county region is probably 200,000 people, right? Um, of this. And, and that's a major major issue. And then the other problem is emotional intelligence, like looking in the mirror and seeing us for who we are. Because there's so many times I've been to conferences and trainings and listened to incredible speakers talk about the very things you're talking about. And the circle that's around me agrees with it, but they think that's what they're doing. And it's not even close. That's it right there. You, you just hit the nail on the head, Danny. Uh, we had a guest, early guest on our podcast named Tommy Spaulding, a friend of mine, author, speaker, and he made this comment. He said, 90% of leaders think they're a servant leader, but only 10% really are. But so if you think about that, that's you chuckle at it, but that could be the, the, only, the main obstacle, right? Because if I think I'm already there, why am I going to work on getting there? I'm not. But here's the under to that, Danny, which the leaders are struggling to face. The question is, why do I believe I'm there? We want to say, well, because it feels good to feel that. But here's the thing. I want to believe I'm there because I'm terrified of what it would look like to be different. So what's really the issue is the fear I have of showing up differently as a leader that leads me to believe I'm already there. So I don't need to do the work. That, I mean, that's if we, if we, if we strip it all down, the, the failure of leadership is fear-based. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to make a change. I don't want to be uncomfortable. And as we were talking off the air, you were talking about you saw bad leaders and said, I don't want to be that, right? If you look at a leader today, and we want to talk generations, but it's only slightly about generations. I, I, don't, I don't know how old you are, Danny. I've been working 37, 38 years. I'm 62 years old. So I've seen multiple generations of the workforce, right? You take someone today who's 40 and you say, 
And they might say, you know, I'm kind of intrigued by leading this different way. But that 40-year-old has probably never seen the leadership that we're talking about. They've never seen it modeled. So they're, they're being encouraged to lead in a way that they've never seen before, which is scary. They're not going to, they're going to, that's a huge risk. And that's the, you know, leaders need to take risk, values-based risk. And a lot of people are unwilling because they just, that's all they ever seen. They've all they've ever seen is this other kind of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 46 years old. And I, I, I'm, I had, I was lucky. I had two really good leaders as I came up through the police department. And I can think of different examples about what made them really good leaders. But one of the things that made them good leaders is they were human. They realized that they didn't have to know everything. They were smart enough to build teams strategically around them to fill in their gaps and weaknesses. And they understood that if they could be human and if they could have that courage to be vulnerable with their team members, then their team members could be human too. Because the reason people aren't creative and progressive and innovative is because they fear failure. And that fear stifles all your innovation, all your creativity, right? Well, when they lead by example in that way and give people the right to fail and they, they, they establish the right, they, they reframe what failure is. It's just one step on the pathway to, to the success. People are willing to do that. They're willing to, to have, you know, they become very engaged within the organization about employee engagement, but that transitions into ownership where they're purpose-driven right? They believe in the goals, objectives of the place, and they're looking and they're empowered to make things better, not because it's important to the boss, but because it's important to them. They've got this extreme psychological and emotional commitment to the organization and a passion for the work it is they do. And so we can't miss the, the, the power of that vulnerability. For, for us, we did a podcast, 21st Century Leadership, Leading the Whole Person. And it really is about that. And this idea that what's going on in your personal life, that doesn't matter, Right. I used to, I got that wrong when I was younger. I used to say, leave your baggage at the door. And we had some people that came in and it was just kind of toxic. There was a better way to do it. But no, no, we, we come to work as our whole person. We go home as our whole person. And leaders have a duty and responsibility to understand the impact they're having on their team members' lives, just not in the four corners of, of their workforce, but in, in their lives. It's, it's, it's crazy. Well, you hit, you've hit a couple, so many things in what you just said, Danny. One is you identified one of the other big disconnects that leaders have. Um, this thing about failure. If you ask most leaders, how important has failure been in your life? I'm going to guess 90 plus percent of gun. Most important thing in my life. I learned the most from failure. I've, I've grown the most from that. You got to learn from that. You got to fail forward, all that great stuff. But then you go to their organization, you ask their team, is it safe to make mistakes here? Most of the time, they're going to say, no, it's not, because the leader's not walking that walk, because the leader fell into the trap of knowing that failure is helpful, but not having seen that before does not come to the table with a mindset that we're going to create a culture to offer people supportive opportunities to learn and fail. So you got that disconnect. I love that you talked about impact. Leadership to me is about, you know, you build trust, which allows you to have influence in order to create impact. But we also have impact that we didn't intend. And leaders need to be vulnerable enough to take responsibility for that and take ownership. Because, you know, one, I'm big on words, and I like to tell leaders words to get rid of. There's some you need to embrace. Like to your point earlier, uh, I did a, a newsletter video about maybe a week ago, said the three most important phrases leaders need to not only learn, but use regularly. To total of 10 words, 
I don't know. I was wrong. I made a mistake. How often we hear that from leaders, but that's what we need to hear from leaders. Not I've got all the answers. And, and you had so much in there. I want to throw in one other thought. Something that leaders have lost, and you talked about it. Leadership is, not, is a privilege. It's not something you got there. In fact, once you get there, it means now the work really begins because now you have these people are your actual responsibility more so than ever. And that's why I love this mindset that leadership is about earning the right. I have to earn the right to your respect. I have to earn the right to your trust. I have to earn the right to your followership. I have to earn the right to your engagement. I'm not entitled to anything. Because as soon as I feel entitled and act entitled, I create separation and I dehumanize the people around me. It's earning the right. Leadership is earned. And if we had people doing that every day, we would, we would throw the switch in a different direction. And we just, you and I are pushing the switch. Well, we're pushing hands towards the switch, but more it's an invitation. Who's ready to throw the switch and take that risk? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love what you're talking about there. It, earning the right. Um, leadership is about earning the right and the way you broke that down is absolutely amazing. What are, what are some keys? So as you see 21st century leadership, cause you and I could just go back and forth yeah. for, for hours and this, I mean, I'd just be on fire the whole time, but for the purpose of the listeners and the link to the show, what are, what are some other things, gaps that you see or, 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 or qualities or strategies of 21st century leadership that, that make the difference? Well, we've talked about vulnerability. And, and the thing I'll add on that is vulnerability is a very confusing topic. It scares people to death. And often it's because if and you think it, there's a reason it scares people because vulnerability is by definition taking a risk. And we tend to want to naturally avoid risk. We don't realize we're doing it, but we want to avoid risk. So um, I actually, I've got this new book coming out in November called Snow Globe Leadership. And the chapter on vulnerability does a couple things. One is it says, let's take the emotion out of vulnerability. Because too often we think vulnerability is about showing emotion, but that's maybe, you know, one out of 50 examples of what vulnerability is. But we use that to say, I can't be emotional here. It doesn't fit. So therefore I won't be vulnerable. Vulnerability is really uh, the, what I put in the book was that vulnerability is taking the risk of being human. That's it. Because in life, if we're going to have relationships, we need to take risks. So vulnerability is a key piece to better understand it and be willing to, to model it for the people around us. Uh, we talked about impact awareness and responsibility are two key pieces for me. Um, from an organizational perspective, uh, a big thing that I talk about is becoming more acutely aware of our tolerance factor. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you've probably heard this, you've probably heard something like this, but we like to think that, um, have you ever heard of saying, um, I don't, you know, I don't care what you say, I only care what you do. Well, that's true. You know, we need to have alignment in our leadership. But what I realized was that most organizations, teams, even communities, their biggest issue is not what they're not doing. It's the fact of what and who they're tolerating. You say, this is what we stand for. This is our value, but you allow people on your team to not align with that value. You say, this is how we're going to do business, but we allow exceptions to that. 
And what I've realized is people used to think that they had, oh, I got my hands up here really high. My one hand's really high. Here's what we believe in. Here's our culture. Here's our value. Here's our team. And we've got some exceptions. We know that. But the truth is those exceptions down here are actually what your bar is. Absolutely. Because if you say we care about our people, but you allow people to be verbally abusive to your team, then you don't care about your people. That's it's a, you know, it's, it's really a black and white scenario. And we love to think we're in the gray now. So tolerance factor is something I have people look at. And the other, the other thing I'd say is there's not enough focus on trust building. Uh, I know that you had the, the master of trust, uh, David Horsager, some time ago, I, I've seen David speak many times, met him a couple of times. He is I mean, incredible. He has gone, he's incredible. He's gone so deep into trust and his work is so important because I have found in working with companies that no matter what they say, the issue is at the core, the issue has always been trust, but nobody's talking about trust. That's a, that's the scariest topic on the planet. You think vulnerability, a scary topic. Let's go into a boardroom and say, let's talk about how well we trust each other or not. Oh man, you want to shut up a, a meeting? So those are some of the things that fly out at me. And, and the last thing I'll say, because you mentioned 21st century, I think we need to start shifting even that conversation because yes, it was about 21st century, but over the last 21 years in this century, the nature of work and the workforce has changed dramatically. So we were talking about these things 21 years ago, but not much. We've really been talking about these topics in the last 10 years. In fact, if you think about vulnerability as a conversation, that really started. Brene Brown started that conversation in 2011 or 2012. So we've got 10 years of that. And now came COVID with an entire world rethinking what work looks like to them. And if you're not leading differently and thinking differently today, I guarantee you you're failing as a leader because everything in front of you has changed. The game changed. It's like, you know, it's like you were a baseball player and you've got certain skills and you can't, you walked out of the dugout and it turns out you're actually playing um, cricket. Are there similarities? Yeah. Are you going to do well at baseball if you're suddenly playing cricket? Yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, not at all. Not at all. We got to change. I, I like that idea of the rethink. And it's it's number one, as you talked about, and the reasons people are leaving. I want to break down uh, a couple things real quick. Acutely aware of tolerance factor. So, and I've seen this firsthand. And, and, and this this guy was, was a great leader. He was a good coach. He made sure there was good training. He supported. He got out of your way. He empowered you. He included you. You felt like you belonged. But the one piece missing that ended up destroying the entire culture was accountability. And so, you know, my, my mentor in 2008, at 33 years old, I became the police chief of Dixon. And I right away got involved in the International Chiefs Mentoring Project and a chief by the name of Brad Bloom, who's now the assistant village manager in Hinsdale, told me in a conversation, people respect what's hard and they disrespect what's easy. And so you said those people at the bottom level that are doing it a way that shouldn't be done. They're operating against our value. They're speaking with bad intentions, right? Um, they're, they're not bought into the program. By allowing that to continue, you are losing the trust and the respect of your team 
and of that person. So one of the things I like to talk about with leaders is what are your gun lines? What are the things that you will absolutely not tolerate? You know, for me, one of them is one voice leadership. It was one of the main issues within the police department coming up through the ranks was that you had high level leadership who was sending a different message. And so we have very clear expectations around that. Another one is gossip and rumors and backstabbing and undermining. You can't allow that thing. And the next one is your values. You cannot compromise your values. So this, you can do everything right, but if you don't have the courage to hold lines of accountability, and it doesn't mean screaming and yelling at people. It doesn't even mean firing people. It means having courageous and fierce conversations coming from a place of caring and compassion and humanism. If you do that and you nip those things in the bud, everything changes. Well, and when you say it's absolutely true. And, and I liked how you said that, Danny, that even if you get everything right, and the way I do it is, you know, you built this engine, this car, you've got the, you've got everything about this car. So it should be the highest performing car on the planet. It's got all the right fuel even, and you can't seem to get where you want to go. But then you look back behind you and there's this chain with an anchor dragging you down. That's tolerance. So we can talk about it, but we've got to, you know, and what's the impact of that tolerance? It always comes down to just what you said, trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to trust you when you say this is what you stand for, but you allow this, then I don't believe you. You're essentially a liar. And we'd like to rationalize our tolerance because, you know, and it's interesting. You talked about the fierce conversation, but I have to tell you, whenever I think about that, I think of John Wooden. John Wooden, one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time, and many people don't know him because generations, you know, he's been gone a while. Forget about his records. He was a great coach, but he was not a yeller. He was not a screamer. And I read one of his books on leadership probably 20 years ago, and he talked about an incident with Bill Walton, who was one of the greatest college centers of all time. Great player for UCLA. Well, John Wooden had a rule on his team, no facial hair. So this is back in the early 70s. They have a bit of a break. John Walton shows up at practice. He hasn't shaved. And and Wooden goes over and starts to talk to him about it. And and as you might guess, if you know who about Bill Walton, he's gone about, well, freedom, and I, it doesn't affect my play, gives this long and passionate speech. And John Wooden looks, and looks up at him, because John Wooden was a little man, looks up at this seven-foot-two behemoth and says, Bill, the team's going to miss you, and walked away. That was it. Clear. Now, whether you think it's a good rule or not, but the values were set. The expectations were set. He didn't yell at him. He didn't engage in an argument. He looked him in the eye and said, the team's going to miss you. I look back and say, why do we even have to have fierce conversations? Why can't we just have a direct conversation Yeah, like that? Like that's just brilliant to me. Well, you know, it's funny because the, the whole idea. So Luis Gonzalez was on the podcast um, several months ago now, just an amazing guy. And their book was Fierce Conversations. But what it had to do with, and I was just working with uh, somebody in my consulting business, is th- there's this fear that if you approach somebody, that if in that situation, if you approach Bill Walton, Bill Walton's not going to like you anymore, right? That fear <laughs> of man that stops us from doing what is right and how to have, because those conversations really aren't fierce. They're caring, they're compassionate, they're direct, right? They're human. 
And, and honestly, they're so much easier than people think. And once you get used to having these conversations, they become easy and they just become part of what it is you do. But as a leader, it becomes part of what other people do. So instead of talking about people behind each other's back and gossiping and undermining, spreading rumors, they're having those conversations with people. It changes everything. The trust side, David Horsager is amazing. I actually went and became a facilitator of the Trust Edge. It was back in 2012. It was after the, the falling out from the Rita Cronwell embezzlement that we talked about off air. People that follow the show know, know my involvement in that. But something I think that's so important, I've talked to David about this, to building trust there's two things. One is trust first, right? Trust first. Unless you're giving somebody, you know, the, a single signature for all your accounts, right? Trust first. It's an incredible trust builder. And the second is the power of believing in somebody. Because when you believe in someone, you tell them, I respect you. I trust you. I care about you. You're important. You matter. And when you do that, that builds trust and it builds your culture. Well, that's why I love David Horsaker, uh, because as he points out, it is, is about trust, and there's so many layers to trust, and we like to assume trust because it feels good. And I think to your point, I've always said, and a lot of others have said it, there's three types of approaches to trust. One is I trust first. So I'm going to trust you until you give me a reason to not trust you. And even then, I'm going to come from a place of trust. I'm going to check it. I'm not going to be naive, right? But I'm going to trust first. The other is to be neutral, which means I don't trust you or distrust you. I'm going to see how it goes. And the other, and we've got, we know people like this, that you have to earn the trust, which is important, but they distrust first. When I write about this and talk about it, I tell people, look, I'm not telling you you're right or wrong. However, think about this. If you want to build more trust, which of those three is most likely to build trust? Because if you're, if I'm over here distrusting you and saying, you got to prove yourself trustworthy before I trust you, that's not a relationship because a relationship doesn't say you got to go first. And now this whole trust thing is like a quid pro quo. That's not what trust is. So I choose to trust first and I am still discerning. I still make assessments as I move forward, but I start with trust and I think so many people in leadership need to be thinking about the way that you're, well, pun intended, the way you're thinking impacts your leadership. Because if you're thinking people are not trustworthy, why should they trust you if that's what you think? I mean, just think about that logically. Why should people trust you if you think people aren't trustworthy? And if you say that regularly, or you say, you know, some of the things you said earlier, I'm a big believer in the power of words. Be careful what you say to yourself. If I walk around saying, I got to go have this difficult conversation with Danny. Well, I just made it a difficult conversation. <laughs> Why can't I just say, I got to go have a conversation with Danny. I got to have an honest conversation with Danny. But when I label it difficult, do I want to do it now or less like, oh, I don't want to do it now. I just said, oh, that's something to be avoided. So I think there's so much that leaders can learn. And there's so much here. I love that you talked about mentors, uh, Danny. I think the topic that is often missed in leadership, and we've referenced it a little bit, and I actually think it's more important than mentoring, and that is the modeling idea. Leaders need to be good mentors, but they need to understand that they are a model. And what are you modeling? How will people receive that? How will they experience that? 
And what do you want your leadership to be? You need to be thinking about how do I model that in this moment, in this next conversation, in this next decision, and whatever it is, how, in, in what ways can I model what I say I believe in? Yeah, absolutely. When I think of mentors too, so I have five, five mentors and I've diversified those across many different professions because the, I think there's, there's a ton of, of threat to our growth and our pursuit of getting 1% better every day, adding layers of greatness and groupthink. And so if my mentors were just in policing, I'm going to be trapped by that thought. If my mentors are just in city management. And so that's been a big thing in that modeling site. Because I, I think when you're the boss and you evaluate people and we have decision-making authority over their promotions and stuff, it, it can be a mentoring relationship, right? But but it gets a little strained. And so I always encourage people to try to find a mentor who either isn't your boss. They can be a mentor, they can't, but they're more of a model, I think, as you're talking about. I All think right. that's an awesome distinction. So Jeff, we're, 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 coming, we're coming down to an end of the time we have today. So much great information. What is something about 21st century leadership that I haven't asked that you really wanted to cover? Or what is a call to action you have for leaders? I'll give you two, both really quickly. The call Good. to action is ask your people. Sit down, ask your people what's going on and what would work best for them. People, leaders are often terrified to ask the question. And it's, I get why they're terrified because now the expectation is you'll really hear them and do something about it. That's not happening enough. Ask your people how they're doing, what, what could be better for them, and be willing to look for ways to make that happen. The other thing that we didn't talk a lot about, and I'll just cover it quickly, is the role of empathy and leadership. In particular, I want to just highlight something that I think is getting in our way. We're consistently hearing that leaders need to be more empathetic. And again, we're, I'm not talking about positional leaders. I'm just saying leadership is about empathy. That's about that humanization of the experience and of the relationship. But what I often hear people say, that knee jerk, and I think it's fear driven, it's that fear of vulnerability, which is, yeah, but you can't be too empathetic. So my statement to your listeners is, I don't believe that we can be too empathetic. Now, the one exception is there are people who are empaths who are overwhelmed by other people's energy. That's, that's a very micro percentage of our population. But what people think is, I, need to be, I can't be too empathetic because I won't be able to make the hard decisions. They're totally unrelated. Being empathetic doesn't mean I don't make hard decisions. It doesn't mean I don't set boundaries. It doesn't mean I don't hold accountability. It just means I do those things with empathy. I make those decisions. I converse with you with empathy. I listen with empathy. I make decisions with empathy. I hold boundaries, yours and mine, with empathy. I, I commit to accountability with empathy. I think one of the most dangerous things we talk about today is that we could be too empathetic because when I hear that, I think, well, that's just an excuse not to be empathetic. Because if you're afraid of being too much of something, you're not going to be enough of something. And that's to me, is what leadership is. Take those risks to go way outside your comfort zone, because here's what I believe, Danny. Great outcomes are always preceded by great discomfort. Always. Great outcomes are always preceded by great discomfort. And leaders are the ones who are willing to be uncomfortable and lead anyway. The tougher the situation, the further you got to lean in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So much, so much empathy. I'm with you hundred percent. I believe, 
and I think my people would tell you, if you asked them about my level of empathy, if, if it's on a scale of one to 10, I'm, I'm right there. Nine, nine and a half. There's always room to go. You never give yourself a 10, but being understand if, if we're going to lead the whole person, we have to meet them where they're at. We have to understand where they're at. Right. And then compassion, taking action to help them through that. But there's also that duty and responsibility that you talked about in your tolerance level, where there's many times is, is much. And, and if, if, if I've had this conversation with somebody, it is the truth where I've had to sit across from people and say, you know, Jeff, you've left us with no choice, but to go in a different direction. And we've got to have the courage to do that as well. And when we do it, it doesn't even have to be negative. We can help them find what that other direction is, right? We can care about them and continue to support them and what that journey is, but it's so, so essential to do great outcomes preceded uh, by, by, by great struggle. You know, you said to use a different word there, but the, you have to do that. The, the greater the challenge, right? Challenge equals opportunity. The greater the challenge, the greater the opportunity. So we're talking with Jeff Nishwitz and we're talking about 21st century leadership, that leadership gap, the crisis in leadership, the real failure of leadership. When you look at, you know, uh, the great resignation, the reasons behind that, people are rethinking work and life. They're stressed and burnt out. They're dissatisfied. They don't feel like they're cared for. And then unemployment benefits come after that. People don't leave an organization. They leave their immediate supervisor. We believe there's four things everybody needs. And I think it ties into this. We haven't talked about it. One, they need to be cared for. Two, they need to feel important. They need to feel like they belong in the organization. They need to feel like they're making a difference. We're so purpose-driven and, and they need to be appreciated. If we get those things right, we're on our way there. Jeff talked about the importance of 21st century leadership. People first. Our, our, our job is to grow, develop, and engage people. Clear values, clear vision, live our values, walk the talk, do the right thing based on our values, be courageous, be vulnerable. Don't let fear hold us back. Fear is a liar. Fear is a first-class ticket to failure and be human. So much gold in this. I can't wait to break it down when we release it, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Thanks, Danny. I enjoy the conversation. As you can tell, I love having conversations about leadership. As do okay. I. So Jeff, where can people find you? So people are going to listen to this, be like, I want more of Jeff. Where can people find you? Well, the good news is it's really easy. If you can spell my last name, because it's an unusual last name, which is N-I-S-C-H-W-I-T-Z. So if you go to nishwitzgroup.com, you find me. You go to social media, put in Jeff Nishwitz, you will find me. Love to have you jump into the conversation. Uh, I like to riff and rip on leadership, whether it's on a podcast or in social media. Reach out. Let's chat about it. And maybe we'll have a drink when we do. Love that. Love that. We're, we're, I'll take you up on that, Jeff. I'm going to take it. So within our show notes, um, the description of the podcast, all the ways to get a hold of Jeff, he just talked about, we're going to link, we'll link the Leadership Junkies podcast. Um, you know, it's our believing belief there, there aren't enough good podcasts out there on leadership, and we need to think about this and come at it in many different ways. So, you know, to our audience, let's support Jeff. Let's check out his show. Um, he's the author of four books. There'll be some links uh, in that as well. A fifth book coming out. What was the name of that book again? It's called Snow Globe Leadership, Shaken, Not Settled. Okay. Okay. And that's coming out in November, Jeff? November 4th. All right. I'm putting that in stone, baby. There you go. November 4th, big date. I'll be buying that book. Can't wait to check it out. Take a deeper dive into what Jeff is doing and his team. To our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a rating review. Uh, it'll help us reach more people organically. And remember, always be committed to excellence.